Hello, hello, my friends, my family, my community, my tribe. Welcome to the Hippie Moms Podcast. Welcome back. I am so glad you're here today. You guys, I have such a great podcast. Um, we are going to really talk about how we undoctor, how we move away from this modern way of healthcare, of diagnosing and prescribing, because that will never be the path to health ever, ever, ever. Now, of course, you know, medicine and health care regarding to acute instances like accidents, when we break our leg, when we, you know, I cut my finger really bad one time and I had to go to the emergency room and they took care of it. Thank God for that type of medicine. But the medicine that I'm talking about uh, is specifically these chronic diseases and mental illness. And here's what I love so much about our guest is he is a former, he is a psychiatrist. He's a renowned mental health advocate, a keynote speaker and psychiatrist with a passion for helping people find their authentic selves. You are gonna love the story. He was your run of the mill psychiatrist diagnosing, prescribing, diagnosing, prescribing, and he realizes that this old system, and it's actually a fairly new system when it comes to humanity, is we cannot heal ourselves with pills made of petroleum. It's just not going to work, my friends. And so Dr. Fred Moss joins us, and he really talks about how communication, connection, being with others, being our creative spaces, being able to self-express and listen to those around us, be present with those around us, are the core of all healing, not just in mental health, but in healing, including some of the healing that we could, we could certainly use right now in this day and age. I cannot tell you, I mean, I struggle in this day and age. You guys, I, I don't have it all together. I haven't figured it out. I'm on the journey with you. And what's so beautiful is the more guests that I get to speak with, the more that I realize that we all have to find our way, our own specific, unique way that leads us back to ourselves. And this is one guest that I think you're going to really love. He's an author of Creative Eight, Healing Through Creativity and Self-Expression, and his recent book, Find Your True Voice. Um, he's written many articles for Psychology Today. He's uh, won an award for the best essay in a 19, 2019 conference for global transformation titled Global Madness, What We Must, What Must Happen to Unite. I'll make sure that I put that link um, so you have more um, information on him. But regardless, this is a fantastic um, interview. I can't wait for you to listen. So let's just, um, let's dive in. Let's, let's hear what he has to say. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Hippie Moms podcast. Super excited to have Dr. Fred Moss with us. Welcome, Dr. Fred. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. Really excited about this conversation. So um, every, the viewers know a little bit about your background and what you do, but I would love for you to share kind of what led you into doing this type of work and where you are now. Tell okay. us. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. So I was thinking, I think that I was actually born to do this work. And I really mean that. I think I came out uh, of, you know, into this world uh, with a time card in my hand. I was born to, um, you know, with a, I had a pair of parents and a pair of brothers. 
my brothers were 10 and 14 years older than me, and there was a fair amount of chaos and disarray in the family. So what I was called on to do was bring healing to this general chaos. And I was told by my brothers that at that time, I did a really great job. Bundle of joy. I was, a, you know, I was a, a really fun to be around. I had a cool smile. I was really smart. I liked to play. And I was able to bring joy to this family. And I think that's really, honestly, where it got started. I remember being in my playpen, um, actually sitting there holding on to the little bars of my playpen and watching my parents and my brothers speak to each other and thinking that someday I wanted to do that. Someday I wanted to communicate. Someday I wanted to speak and listen like they're doing. I could tell that that's what the whole point was of being alive. They made so much a big deal of communicating. And that's really what I wanted to do. And so I figured that that would happen when I went to school because I heard this thing about school, you know, and I was getting all prepared to go into kindergarten. And that's where they would teach me how to communicate effectively. Of course, that isn't what happened in kindergarten at all. In kindergarten, people were interested, these kids, my friends, they were interested in throwing blocks and picking their nose and, you know, naps and stuff like that. And although I was interested in all those things, too, I wanted to communicate. And that wasn't where it took place. And it actually, of course, got worse as conventional schooling went on. In first grade, I was, a you know, but again, I was very precocious. My brothers taught me all sorts of things. So I knew how to read. I knew how to do math. I knew a little bit about rock and roll. I knew a little bit about a lot of things at the time. And my friends didn't know many of those things. And so I was, you know, too smart. And so I would, you know, had, I was bored in class. So I was like the class clown. And there's no elementary school teacher who has forgotten having Fred Moss as their student. I guarantee that. And, uh, you know, that's really how it went for all of school, because I really just wanted to communicate. And so the teachers loved me at the same time that they just, you know, were I was so disruptive. And again, it was all just with the striving to communicate. Now, as you know, and all of us know here in the Western world, as school goes on, it gets less and less likely to communicate effectively in a classroom. It becomes more and more interesting for the teachers to actually just sit you down and shut you up and have you regurgitate whatever they say. And I began to learn against my will that that's what junior high was about. I was hoping junior high would be the place where I really communicated, but it didn't happen there. And then it got worse in high school, even worse. And I began to communicate, but mostly when I was skipping class or outside of the, in the you know, playground or whatever. Um, and I could tell that communication was at the heart of all healing. Communication was really what we're all here to do. In fact, of course, Becky, the reason we're having this podcast is because we're both interested in communication. And the reason anyone's listening to us is because they, too, are interested in communication. We all know that communication is at the heart of being human. It's not, it's not news. You didn't, you know, little Freddie learned that when he was in his playpen, but everyone here knows it as well. Yeah. I eventually decided that I needed to learn how to communicate and fully expected my college days to be where I learned that. So I um, registered, uh, enrolled in, in um, uh, the college 40 miles away from my home because I love their helmets, actually. And I'd heard great things about their city. And that was Ann Arbor, Michigan, at University of Michigan. And I was there uh, for a year and a half. It actually was not a place for open discourse inside the classrooms. And I quit. I dropped out. That's it. I got on a bus and I went to Berkeley, California, and I decided that I would really just find myself mm -hmm. and learn. how. And in Berkeley, I did honestly have a great summer. 
I worked in the hostel. I had a beautiful time and learned a great deal about who I am as a communicator, but it wasn't going to pay any bills. And my family finally convinced me to come back and try school again. Back to school, I went at the University of Michigan again, and uh, there was this new industry coming out, and they thought that I would be good at it. And that industry was called computers, and there was only one computer in all of Michigan, and it was a two-acre facility at the University of Michigan. And there I was, like doing punch cards and doing batch jobs and sitting up all night in the computer room, you know, and turning in my cards. And it was like, no, I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. It's not going to happen. It was fun enough, but it wasn't going to be my career. So what did I do? I dropped out again and came out West one more time. Again, I was encouraged to to, um, do what I needed to do. And my mom, she's like, I'm like, mom, I'm never going back to school ever. No way. And she's like, okay, that's fine, but you got to get a job then. And she got me an application for a job at an adolescent facility, a state hospital for adolescent boys, where I could be a child care worker. Of course, in that job, I began to communicate effectively. Of course, these were my homies. These kids, they call them kids. They were only like five or seven years younger than me. I loved talking to these kids. I loved having relationships. And we would both heal. And, you know, I took them on field trips all over Detroit. And I, you know, we, I worked afternoon shifts. So the administration was gone and we could just have open, open conversations. And it was really there where my mental health career officially began, I'd say. But you can hear it really began mm. back in the day I was born. Yeah. And uh, so, but this was where I finally started getting paid for being a communicator. And really, I really learned how to begin to listen and how important listening was. Um. Was fast forward a little bit. I the thing I hated about that job, I liked that job quite a bit. The thing I hated about the childcare job was psychiatry, exactly, and that's why I went into being a psychiatrist. My brother, fourteen years my senior, was already a psychiatrist, and I knew that communication was what was needed, not what the psychiatrists were offering. What psychiatrists were offering, like if Jimmy and Johnny got into a fight or uh, Tony, you know, was up too late. We would call the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist would come down, talk to Tony for like five seconds, talk to us for seven seconds, and then go in the nursing station and write some order. And then we'd have to go retrieve Tony and hold him down in the quiet room, pull down his sweatpants a bit and jam him full of some injection of some high, you know, high powered adult grade antipsychotic medication. Then the thing that's really interesting about this, Becky, I see you shaking your head in, in dismay is that this has happening still in all the psychiatric hospitals all over this country. Mm. This is not an antiquated idea. This is an idea that absolutely is totally alive today, totally. And anyone who thinks it isn't alive is just fooling themselves. It's very alive. Chemical restraint, because people aren't doing what the staff wanted to do, is a very frequent encounter inside of psychiatric hospitals. Mm. So this was something I couldn't manage. This was something that I couldn't tolerate. This was too barbaric. And I wanted to go back into being a psychiatrist so that I could do this right. And that's what I did. I actually, uh, along with being a child care worker, I completed my degree in downtown Detroit at Wayne State and then um, eventually applied to medical school and got into medical school in downtown Chicago at Northwestern University. Uh-huh. Now, Chicago is a great place, a great place to learn how to communicate. i totally adore Chicago, Illinois. And I was there for five years. Um, I was there through medical school and then uh, in my internship. And then 
um, eventually met my my wife and mother of my two kids, um, not my present wife, but my wife at the time, who was to be my wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, we moved down to Cincinnati. And uh, that's where my psychiatric practice launched. And I, I did a psychiatric practice for uh, about, I don't know, 15 years or so. But the thing that had happened that really, really altered everything was that while I was in training, Prozac was introduced to the world. And I, you're way too young to understand the impact of that. But when Prozac was introduced to the world, it was as big as anything going on in the news today. That's for sure. It was on the cover of Time, the cover of Newsweek, the cover of U.S. News and World Report. Actually, on the cover, like a picture of the green and white capsule. You can find those. Art, you can find that. And the idea was that these things were being touted as like, um, you know, the panacea, the the way to like beat discomfort. Like if you were uncomfortable, Prozac was the answer. Rather than getting that if you were uncomfortable, that's called being human. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. That, but that isn't how it went. Prozac was being uh, considered to be put into water systems in New York and Los Angeles. And like very real. And by the way, it has made it there. But that's what people do is they throw it down the sewer and it's in our water system. Yeah. Yeah. So it's again, don't fool yourself that you had and you're not eating a little bit of Prozac every single day. Yeah. Um, so and all sorts of other drugs to for that matter. But yeah. the idea was that I had now sunken costs, like I had learned how to be a psychiatrist. I had done my residency, done my internship, done my medical school, done my fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry. And now I was being asked to be a diagnoser and a medicator because that's what psychiatry does. Right. In fact, if I ask you what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, you'll likely have the same answer everyone does, which is that psychiatrists medicate. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's what people say. That's what we know. That's how I got typecast. And all of a sudden, I was doing exactly what I went in the field never to have to do. Mm. So the rest of my career has really been spent fighting myself and with some soul sacrifice and some heart pain, some heartache about actually delivering things that I was not aligned with entirely. Mm. I am not interested in diagnosing people and I'm typically not interested in medicating people at all. And I don't find that medications do what they're, um, what they're marketed to do on a frequent basis. So, but there I was a hundred, you know, and in that time, in those 30 years, I've had 40,000 patients uh, that I have at least signed off on a chart. Uh, some of them I only met for a second or two, but they're still it's approximately 40,000. And I have written over 100,000 prescriptions. Now, that is not really who I am. You know, that is not what I came out to be. But it is what I did. And I was in the trenches. I was, you know, I was in enemy lines. I was working with what's really so in the real world and gaining my own level of of validation. And, you know, and, um, you know, like being credible in the world as a psychiatrist. And I was pretty good at it for what it was worth. I know all about these drugs, what they're supposed to do and how they're how and when to give them. And I've supervised innumerable people and, you know, and. I've been at the top of the chain of multiple different institutions, et cetera. My resume is fantastic. It is ridiculous. It is truly ridiculous. And the reason it's ridiculous is because I left a lot of jobs. Mm. Because what I was really looking for was something that was aligned with who I am. Yeah. So I, it looks like I've had a lot of jobs, which yeah. I have. I've had jobs all over the whole psychiatric landscape. 
looking for that job where I didn't have to do this, but -hmm. it was not really visible or available. And eventually this is what people wanted from me. Yeah. This eventually led up to like in the, in the middle of the last decade. So I'd say 2016 and forward, uh, 2006 is when I really made a big difference in 2006. And I, I will, I will move us forward here in 2006. I, um, decided that I could no longer do this as an ongoing basis, that it was just too much heart pain. Mm-hmm. And, um, I began to take, I began to do something that most psychiatrists don't ever think of doing which was I took my clients off their medicines. Holy cow. Like, wow. You know, wow. How totally radical is that? (laughs) And when I did it, what ended up happening was that they got reliably better, way better, way better, way, way, way better. Like frequently and almost usually their diagnosis that they thought they had disappeared. Really? Yeah. So what I learned and what I at that point was that these medicines often not only perpetuate or advance or increase the symptoms of the um, of the condition we're trying to treat, but they often cause the actual condition they're trying to treat. And so I really got that. And it was very interesting. And, you know, psychiatrists are not taught how to do what I was doing. We are only taught a few different things. We're taught how to increase, add, or change medicines. If you stay, if you get good, if you get better, then we keep you on your same medicine. If somehow you get better, you won't likely get better. But if you do, we'll keep you on the same medicine. If you get worse, all we do is add, increase, or change your medicine. There's never a real indication for coming off medicine once you start. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of taking people off medicine really led to this epiphany of learning that these medicines typically um, contribute or perpetuate the symptoms that marketed to treat. Mm. Now, once I learned that, I wanted to scream it from the mountaintops. I wanted to tell all my friends and all the patients and all the people I loved and all the people I cared about and all my doctor friends, look what the hell's going on. But I couldn't do that because being violent doesn't get the point across. But I had violence in me. I was like, you know, but it doesn't land if you're violent. You need to be calm. You need to be able to deliver. And in the last several years from 2006 forward, that's what I've been doing is sort of calming myself so that I can be conversationally sound and entertaining enough to actually get my point across without, um, you know, without shaking trees, without making people afraid. Yeah. Um, Because making people afraid, even if I'm saying the right thing, doesn't work to to, uh, propagate what the direction that I want to go. Right. right. So in 2016, I started creating a company um, called Welcome to Humanity. And Welcome to Humanity is what, you know, that's my umbrella company. And I think it's become self-serving of what it really means, self-descriptive, meaning like this is just humanity. Like if you're uncomfortable, welcome to humanity. If you're having something that you can't tolerate, welcome to humanity. If you're seeing something unspeakable that you don't know how to manage, welcome to, if you're confused, if you're afraid, if you're sad, if you're anxious, if you're nervous, if you have insomnia, if you're scattered, if you have difficulty in social situation, if you have trauma that's still eating you up, if all of that is true, welcome to flipping humanity. Yeah. That's all this is. And yeah. when I started that, when I really started Welcome to Humanity and I began to create that whole framework, um, I had to do so slowly. I ha- Again, easing that into my, I was concerned about what the impact would be on the whole industry if I was to step into that, because it's almost like too honest. 
Yeah. You know, and uh, too honest won't get won't won't pay the bills either. It's like you got to be a little bit careful. So, um, you know, I started writing some articles. I wrote some award winning articles. Um, uh, I wrote an article called Global Madness that I'm really proud of. I wrote another article called What If Mental Illness is Simply a Conversation? That's a great article. I love that one. And um, I uh, began to be a I began to be a podcaster as well. So um, this made a lot of sense. I would have communicating for the effectiveness. And I had the Welcome to Humanity podcast. I began to have great conversations with high-powered people in the field and elsewhere, really pointing to their spectacular nature of their core. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I began to be, I think, a, a pretty interesting podcast guest over time as well. So as a writer, as a keynote speaker, as a podcast guest and a podcast host, um, and a teacher, a facilitator, I began to teach people how to do telepsychiatry. Oh. I learned how to do telepsychiatry in like 2012. And so long before it became the gold standard. Right. And I taught people how to be, I had a course called Mastering Telepsychiatry. And now I've taught people how to be podcasters as well. So wow. the whole idea has been my commitment to help giving avenues to people to open up and be honest and true and authentic and genuine with their true self. My most recent book is uh, called Find Your True Voice, and I really appreciate that book, and your listeners can pick that up by going to drfred360.com, and uh, The Creative Eight was another book that I wrote, which is helps people actually find what's at their core and helps them self-express in ways over and above just verbally connecting with another person. Um, And here I am, you know, it's the idea now at this point is that uh, I'm back to working. I actually have a job at uh, at a place that is aligned, did their own vetting of me. They actually, like, they came and found me. They're like, you're with, you're who we're looking for. And they hired me to be a psychiatrist on their team. And if all of my clients don't have medicines, they're happy with me. Like, they're okay if I don't medicate people. They want me to do proper therapy based on my history and, and my experience. And I'm really, really happy to be in that position. That's beautiful. Wow. What, what a story. And one, I just appreciate so much where you were that, um, how you really felt the discord when you were, when you were in a situation that you didn't believe in what you were doing or what the system was doing. And now, which I think is so beautiful to build the foundation of where you are now, because more and more people I do believe, and I'm curious if you uh, agree with this, are waking up and realizing that these medications actually never do what they're supposed to do. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, they, I, I did see that, you know, I saw some, uh, some, someone who commented on you, like using the word never and not being very happy with you. Using oh, got it. Never. That makes sense. And, yeah. I, you know, I think, it, I think it's close to never, by the way. I'm not arguing with you at all. I don't think, I think what people, what people don't realize is it's not just a bandaid. It's actually a bandaid with a razor blade embedded in it. Ooh, that's good. That's a good analogy. Yeah. I've been doing this a while. I've figured this one out a little while ago and this is what it is. It's like, it is a bandaid. So when you put a bandaid with a razor blade embedded on it uh, over a cut, initially it will cover the bleeding. And then the bleeding will begin to ooze sometime later. And you'll think that your cut got worse. You will never blame the Band-Aid for causing the cut to get worse. Mm. 
So this is what this is frequently what these medicines are. Or I have another analogy that I think you'll appreciate, which is um, it's sort of it speaks to the myopia of thinking that these medications help. So, for instance, if you had a mosquito bite on your elbow, a really nasty mosquito bite that you could barely reach on your elbow. And you came to me like, Fred, man, I need to, I need help with this mosquito bite. Do you know anybody? And I'd be like, yeah, there's somebody in, in, you know, Santa Fe, but you got to go North and get them. And uh, they'll help you with this mosquito bite. He's like a specialist mosquito bite elbow specialist. And you're like, okay, I'll make an appointment. And you drive up that 60 miles from Albuquerque to Santa Fe and you get there and you show up at his office. He's got a white coat and a stethoscope and a whole deal, little glasses. And he calls you in the back room and he asks if he can do an exam and he sure enough takes out your arm and looks at your elbow and sees this thing and says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm an expert in mosquito bites. This is a mosquito bite. This is an elbow mosquito bite and I can cure this. You're like, cool, man. I, that's why I drove up here. That's why I asked Dr. Fred for a referral. Cause that's what I want. And he says, okay, well, this is how we're going to do it. I have a hundred percent cure rate. And uh, this is what we're going to do. It's only going to hurt for a minute and then you're going to be fine. Okay, go, go, Doc. I'll do anything. This thing is bugging me. Yeah. All right, we're going to cut off your arm at the shoulder. Uh. <laughs> now, the truth is, if you allow me to do that, you will never again have a mosquito bite on your elbow. But the impact of cutting off your arm at the shoulder is so is overlooked. If all you're looking for when you come back to see that doctor in two weeks is, is there a mosquito bite on my elbow? Mm. The answer will be no. And he will continue to have 100% success rate in removing mosquito bites from elbows. Mm. Sometimes these medicines have effects that far overreach what it is they do. So the antidepressants often take away all of your motions not only your depression and the same thing, you know, there are other medication classes that do the same thing where they have massive, you know, large scale effects that get overlooked because we tend to be so myopic to see is the symptom still there. And if it's not, then we call it a success. Mm. I mean, that just really, really resonates so much. And so now we're here, we, we, we are, we don't, we're moving these type of drugs out of our lives. Okay. Okay. So, and, and now we're willing to be human. We're willing to have emotions. We're willing to just, yeah, there's something that you called, I think it's, uh, it's how, how, what's the role in creativity? What is that? From what I'm reading your stuff, it's actually a way to move energy or to actually help us heal. Is is, is it that? Okay. Right. So yeah, sure. Creativity. So uh, my first book was called The Creative Eight, and it was uh, it's called The Creative Eight Healing Through Creativity and Self-Expression. And you can actually get that book um, for free at drfred360.com as a uh, that's as a PDF and an audio uh, that I actually read. So that's that's a fun book. Um, And what we what that whole book uh, moved forward is the idea that mental health and mental illness is often related to how well we're able to communicate our own self-expression. And when we're blocked either internally or externally from getting our point across, because we want nothing more, 8 billion of us want nothing more than to be recognized for who we are. Yeah. That's it. 
That's all we want. That's it. We just want to be seen and heard. That's it for who we are. And what creativity allows for is expanding the capacity to self-express over and above the regular discourse that comes from verbal interchange. Mm. So art and music and dancing and singing and drama and cooking and writing and gardening, photography and cleaning, poetry, these kinds of things go a long ways towards expanding our capacity to self-express. So when we're communicating, we will notice that when you're actually communicating and self-expressing through these uh, creative intentions, the symptoms or the discomfort that you thought you were having before you started doing that tend to dissipate or disappear. And you can notice that, that even while you're dancing or while you're drawing or while you're tapping a pencil on the table or while, you know, while you're cooking um, and then ramen noodles don't really count as cooking just to, but that that doesn't work. And toast doesn't count either. Well, it depends on what you put on the toast, right? It's true. It's true. You can get it done. um, The idea is to tap into your own creativity and the whole point is, is that when you do that, these symptoms or this discomfort, this um, unease, this dis-ease dissipates while we're being creative, mm. while we're using the skill set that came from our birthright, yeah. which is to be creative. And for any of you out there who think that you're not creative, I, you're just lying to yourself. In order to get through the last second that you just got through, you had to be creative. It's very, very creative to take another step in this lifetime. I mean, look at all the things we have to juggle just to get through another moment. There's so much creativity that's going on. Mm, I love that, Dr. Fred. It it seems so simple. Right. It is simple. Little little Freddie is the one who came up with it. Well, little Freddie is brilliant. And, (laughs) and, And truly, I... Do you, so when we're younger, we're almost told not, is that where really kind of it comes from is our younger years, we're told not to express, we're not, we're not okay the way we are. So we have to change the way we show up in the world to meet everyone's expectations. Exactly, exactly. Okay. exactly. And we do, you know, we learn how to be somebody else in order to protect the person that we are. Yeah. When you think about that exact notion, it should blow your mind. It's what crazy. is this idea? What is this idea of learning how to be someone else in order to protect yourself? Like that's what we learned. And it is a crack in the cement that gets larger and larger over time. And we never go back to repair it. So most of us are duplicitous. Most mm-hmm. of us are not living lives that are consistent with our true and honest core self. And we're just not. It's okay. okay. It's totally okay. Yeah. I am not that much better than anyone else at living a life that's consistent with who I am. Right. I mean, we're all have learned over time how to be different than who we are in order to protect who we are. Mm-hmm. We think that we don't speak our true self because we're afraid. What are we afraid of? We're afraid of getting thrown off the island. We're afraid of being dismissed. We're afraid of making more trouble than it's worth. Right. But, you know, what ends up happening is we end up uh, like I think Henry David Thoreau said, you know, the mass of men uh, go through life in quiet desperation and then go to their grave with their song still in them. There's really like so much pain in that beautiful sentence that the Henry David Thoreau put together. And there is nothing more tragic in life than going through life without having anyone ever know who you are. You know, what's so interesting, Becky, is that some of us actually get to the point where we actually say things out loud that even we don't believe. 
what the hell is that now? Yeah. That's not even a lie anymore. That's mm-hmm. regi- that's beyond lying. Yeah. Yeah. We say things that even we don't believe. Like that is crazy. And that has reached that point. Now you could say, oh yeah, you know, propagated by social media or propagated by our difficult times or propagated by the polarity or whatever. It's actually been going on long before this most recent hit in the head that we've taken. So it's been going on for a long time. And, you know, your parents are aware that they're saying things that they no longer believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, all all the generations have been doing that. It's been written about since Socrates time. You know, everyone has spoken to it. But what's really possible is that the there is a possibility of actually clearing that, of making steps, of taking steps to get yourself realigned with who you really are. And it takes something. And it, sometimes it takes self-expressive techniques like the creative eight that we talked about. And other times it just takes incremental steps. Like go to the person that you love, whether your child or your spouse or your family member or your neighbor or the uh, clerk at the store or the you know stewardess on the airplane and say something you've never said before that's more consistent with your true self. Mm-hmm. You will see how addicting that is. Yes. And how easy it is. It's actually way easier to be yourself than try to remember all the junk that you've said in order to pretend to be someone you're not in order to protect the person that you are. Mm. It's way easier. You know, Dr. Fred, this, I can, as the way you explain it, I can really see that this inauthenticity creates so much discord. Of course, it's going to make us sick. Of course, exactly. Of course, of of course, course. we're going to feel mental illness or, exactly. you know, and pains in our bodies because exactly. we're not living in our truth. Exactly, exactly. And now I must say, you know, even for me, I had a major medical, um, I had a major medical uh, threat scare this year. I had a ruptured dissecting aortic aneurysm coming out of my ascending aorta right from my heart on March 20th, uh, you know, which is, I know you might not want to date your show, but it's exactly six months ago. It's exactly six months from today. And I was, you know, my, my aorta blew up. Like I needed emergency open heart surgery and that's what I got that day. And, you know, I could make a case and my wife, who's like, just, you know, she's flat out total cosmic, like she's ridiculous. Um, she's, she makes a strong case for that of being in some ways about the duplicity that I have lived in my relationships and in my business that of course, the pathway out of my heart was overstrained and eventually cracked as it should, like a pathway might, if it was overstrained and it is my heart. And since I've recovered, which I'm, I'm, I declare that I am recovered fairly well at this point. Um, I get to, I do have a new, um, maybe a new motivation or a new capacity or a new um, uh, pathway to being more aligned with myself than I ever was. In some ways, it's like that opened that up for me so that I'm not stuttering very much anymore. That's for sure. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Something so intense could have yeah. something so beautiful yeah. on the end. Um, so Dr. Fred, I would love to leave before I would love to leave the listeners with what are some ways that we can creatively express? I know you talk about it in your book, but can you give us a little bit of things that we can take with us to begin to ponder and contemplate and see how we can integrate into our lives? Yeah, sure. 
So that's a great question. I think the first thing I want to point to is the possibility that there might be nothing wrong with you. Okay. I think that's that feels good. That's really important. Yeah. There's a possibility that you, knowing that there's something wrong with you, are not correct. In fact, you could go with, if you know there's something wrong with you, it's kind of proof that there isn't because everyone knows there's something wrong with them. And even the normal people know that there's something wrong with them. And if you actually think that, welcome to humanity. Welcome to humanity. Welcome to humanity. So if you can get that there's nothing wrong with you inherently, that all you're really doing is putting one foot in front of another inside of this world that is absolutely impossible to grasp and contain, like you have no chance, it's true. You have no chance. And the people who are acting like they have chances or that they got this shit together, they don't. They don't at all. They just don't. They just don't. I mean, it's just not. So the fact that you don't is a welcome to humanity situation. Mm-hmm. So when you get that, then you can get that all that's here to do is express. You could say that all is necessary is love, for instance. All that's mm-hmm. necessary is human connection. You could certainly make that case. But the only way that you're going to be healthy is by refining and, you know, detoxing yourself, by finding those quiet times to get in touch with who you really are, and then expressing that one way or another. Now, when I say one way or another, pointing to this question about creativity, the, the, I'm going to go slow, a little slower through what I, have de, uh, what I have defined as a creative eight, which is art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, and gardening were the original eight. And uh, some got added, photography, cleaning, poetry, a few different others have gotten added over time. But when you look at those, you can see that art, even tracing, even drawing, even doodling, when you're creating, you can decrease the discomfort that you're having in life. And when you can connect with another person, any way, shape or form, go ahead and do so. Now, the trump card of that book is the the ultimate, um, like if none of that is working for you, is something called help anybody do anything. So it's like a service. It's like a service orientation. Yeah. And what I get is that that also takes creativity. You need to open your ears. You need to be present. You need to be willing. You need to be available. You need to be listening, et cetera. When you can do that, I guarantee all of your psychiatric symptoms will go away while you're doing that. It just will. And now you might think, yeah, while I'm doing that, but then they're going to come back the moment I stop. Only if you allow them back. Yeah. Only if you declare them as yourself. Mm. For instance, and I'll use one more analogy if you give me a moment, which is this idea of, um, you know, if you come into my office and you tell me, for instance, that you love water too much, you're a little bit too heavy, you got a big nose and a really good memory and wonder what's wrong with you. And I'm like, okay, well, you're an elephant. That's what you are. You're an elephant. Check it out. That's what they are. They're heavy. They got a big nose. They love water and they have a great memory. That's you. Like you meet all the criteria for elephant. If you step away and go, doctor, you're brilliant. You're no wonder. Like I am an elephant. If you walk out of that office knowing that you're an elephant and then go tell your sister and brother that you went to the coolest doctor because he told you you were an elephant. And that's what you are. You looked it up and you meet all the criteria. Then you end up becoming an elephant. You really do. You hold yourself as an elephant. You are an elephant. And anyone who disagrees with you being an elephant clearly isn't informed. Yeah, exactly. Right. They just don't know enough yet. 
Yes. So you walk around. I'm a flipping elephant. That's what I do. This is who I am. I already got, I looked at the four criteria. That's what I got. And I, you know, and then what do you do? You'll seek peanuts and water. Yeah. Because that's what elephants do. Right. You'll design yourself over that identity. What's really possible here is to unlatch yourself from the identity you think you have become, which is more than likely embedded in an identity that you created in order to protect your real self. Yes. So you really can unlatch yourself and create a new opportunity to get in touch with that core self of yours, repair that sidewalk that's been cracked and step into your real self. I invite you to do it incrementally Mm -hmm. uh, with the people you love first, because it can be a little bit daunting. You know, you know, uh, it's not about going to the mountaintops and screaming how much you hate your mother-in-law. That's not about (laughs) self-expression. Self-expression is about actually moving the needle forward in a creative action through either speaking or any of the creative eight mechanisms. Mm, That's so beautiful. Thank you. One of the things I love about your message and just the welcome to humanity is to remind us that we don't come here just to feel good and to all the unicorns and lollipops and rainbows. Like we come here for the entire experience. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so the, if we're uncomfortable, that's good. That it means is. we're getting what we want. Exactly. You're getting exactly. You look, it's not like I wish discomfort on anyone. We all right. want to be comfortable. Of course. But the truth is the smorgasbord of this life experience is you get the, uh, the whole, the whole enchilada, every yes. single piece of it. Yes. And it's all an opportunity. Even the absolutely miserable, treacherous, unspeakable, um, you know, barbaric aspects of being human. Which again, I'm not saying it's okay. Right. Of I'm just saying it's part of life. I know it is. And if, if we, the more that we can embrace it as being part of life, the yes. more that we can see there may be nothing wrong with you for having difficulty dealing with difficult situations. So beautiful. And if you look at how we've evolved from how our ancestors lived, it was hard. They were in the middle of nowhere. They were gathering and foraging and they didn't know when they were going to eat. And now it's like, we have a plethora of everything yet. We are more unhealthy than we have ever been, even though our lives are so comfortable. Indeed. We are definitely more, more unhealthy than we've ever been for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was having a conversation with a big friend of mine, a very good friend of mine last night. uh, We met and we met at, at a Panera downtown and, um, uh, you know, we were just talking about how, where the world is, it's 1159 here and the world, you know, there's so much unhealthiness, there's so much toxic relationships and there's so much we're taking in through our ears and through our mouth and through our eyes and through what we touch and w- what we think and what we say so much toxicity that we're like saying, you know, you know, who's going to step up and take care of ourselves. And it starts being an individual kind of an individual job to be a role model and to spread the wealth, like to be love and then just carry love out into the world. And then, and just have it that that's what the contagion is. You know, that I love that. And it's especially for our mothers because our mothers are raising the next generation Mm -hmm. and how beautiful for them to have these insights and just, more knowing that there isn't anything wrong with you that actually the way or him or your child. Yeah. Or your child. Yes. Or your child. Or your child. If your child's having a hard time in school, there's probably nothing wrong with them. Yes. I'm not saying that they're better than the kids who aren't having a hard time. There's just probably nothing wrong with him. 
there's always going to be hard times. Yeah, there's going to be hard times. Yeah, there is. And how we move through them and how we come out, you know, in the end is really based on our beliefs and how creative can we get in these situations, right? Let that creative juice flow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So how can our listeners find more of you, Dr. Fred? So you want to find more of me, you would look at Dr. Fred, Dr. Fred. 360.com. Uh, that's a pretty cool website I have. And you can find all these freebies up there. You can find uh, access to my um, books and PDF and audio, and you can find some podcasts. Probably this one will be on there pretty soon. And um, you, uh, there's, um, you know, I like to, I like to speak to small groups or medium groups or large groups or corporations or families. So if you want to contact me, uh, there's a contact button where you can, if you would leave your email when you go there, then I will get back to you directly. It'll be me and not my team. Um, and uh, welcome to humanity.net is my, uh, that was my home base uh, uh, website for a long time. And you can also listen for me on a lot of podcasts. I'm on a lot of podcasts as a guest and I have my own podcast now that's called The Healthy Healer. Um, and that's on the backside of the Welcome to Humanity podcast, which are in the archives. And there's some great conversations in there. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of places. You can get my book, um, download my book, or you can get me to send you a hard copy. That's also possible. That sounds great. Well, I'm going to go get my hard copy. Thank you. Um, I really, I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank I you. really do. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for bringing your gift, your experience and your own individual expression to the world it's really beautiful you know what you're you're inspiring us to do it Uh okay can you hear me now i can hear you all right yeah siri just bumped in so um uh so uh yeah you know what's really another thing i want to say realizing that many of your listeners are moms is that all of this stuff little really came from Little Freddy. This is not stuff you're gonna find in a journal. This is not stuff you're gonna find at the American Journal of Psychiatry or in psychiatric conferences around the country. This is Little Freddy's wisdom that has lived on through this whole thing. That's all that really is. And it's possible that little Johnny or little Janie or little child of yours has an already, it's not even possible. It is highly likely that they totally align with everything I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a truth at that level that gets laid down. And the kids, you know, if you're a mom, that means you have a child. If you have a child, this child is already aligned with what it is I'm saying. You're not going to have to teach them this. Right. They know this. Right. This is what they came out knowing. Mm. And our work is not to conform or condition them. Not at all. Right? It's to hold the space for who they are. And we can do that when we hold space for our true authentic selves. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Perfectly said. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much again for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really fabulous. Great question. Yeah. Thank you. All right, everyone. We'll catch you on the next Hippie Moms podcast.